end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist think of objects not as single things but has been made up of many constituents. You all know I made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hey, everybody. You are on Natural Reaction here on Zed Digital. We're here for another week. It's just us this week. We've got Nadia in the studio. Hey. We've got Izzy. Hi. And I am Jacinta. And we've got some sad news. We probably should tell everybody sooner rather than later that Natural Reaction in its current form is finishing up in four weeks' time. So we're not going to be on the next block of the Zed Digital block. Programs. (laughs) Schedule thing. And it's a bit sad. I mean, we've done some really good stuff through the last 12 months. We've been on the show, but... You know, it's exciting. We're, I'm moving down to Melbourne, and Nadia is probably following suit. Well, I'll be she, between here She's and sign-waving back and forth. <laughs> and Izzy's got a new job. Well, maybe. 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 We Touch wood, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and we, uh, we don't know. It's, it's a logistical issue. Yeah, unfortunately. But we might be back because we've gone away before. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, this is uh, the second iteration of the show. There could be a third at some point in the future. Third time is the charm, yeah. is what I hear. So <laughs> We'll see how we go. But yeah, so um, for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing all the stuff that we've kind of talked about during the shows, but we've never actually ended up doing. So this week, we've got a program filled entirely of book club. So I'm going to be talking about... Um, Sex in Space, and one of my co-workers is about to be published in the Best Australian Science Writing 2018 anthology. So I thought I'd do a segment about Sex in Space because it's a really cool article. Um, and I'm also going to be talking about women in science. And I have a sweet book here called Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World. Now, I'm reading all 50 of them, um, <laughs> one after the other. No, but there's actually a bunch of pictures in here. So you're going to have to just think about the pictures. You can't, yeah, you can't see it at home. But it is actually a gorgeous looking book. Yeah. And Mother's Day is coming up. <laughs> actually, yeah, like I would totally recommend this book, Mother's Day. It's really nice. And it's a really cute ta- coffee table book as well. Oh, mm. Nadia, what are you talking about? Well, I'm also going to keep on with the sex theme. <laughs> it's going to be a... Maybe we should point out now that it's probably not going to be a suitable episode for kids. There's going to be a lot of sex talk. No, look, kids have got to learn sometime. <laughs> Izzy thinks it's a, a suitable for kids. No, I disagree. I have just heard <laughs> horror stories from people who came from very traditional upbringings and backgrounds that did not know anything about sex, including on the day of their wedding, and it was traumatic for them. Yeah. And like that is just something you don't want to have to happen. I think sex should be spoken about openly yeah. in an educational sense. Like, maybe some of the things that we're talking about here may be borderline, but it's still... <laughs> yeah. Sex in space, maybe not. <laughs> like, well, uh, that's an interesting physics sort of problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to be... I've spoken about this book before, and it's Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, The Definitive Guide to the Evolutionary Biology of Sex, and it's written by Olivia Judson. I'm so excited for this, by yeah, the way. I'm, I'm pretty damn keen. I we've, think this will be an interesting one. We've had a lot of good things on the show and I'm just looking forward to getting actual excerpts of it. Fantastic. And the second book I have is called The Science of Superheroes and it's written by Lois Gresh and Robert Weinberg and it speaks about basically um, Marvel and DC superheroes and whether the science behind them and their origins are in fact plausible. I love that that book has only gotten more relevant with like all those Marvel (laughs) movies that came out. It's like it was kind of relevant at the time but now it's like super in. Yeah, Infinity Wars just came out. Look at look how topical we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're on point still. I've got a copy of Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is a quite popular pop sci book about 
civilizations, really, about how and why things are. Uh, I like it as an intro for a lot of people into some ideas that they may not have considered about how history sort of played itself out, but it is not the kind of book you should take uncritically. And so we want to go through it, some of it's good stuff, some of it's bad stuff, what's going on, and if we've got time, maybe I'll talk about Dune. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see how we go. I mean, this is going to be an interesting show. We haven't done something like this before, so you're going to have to bear with us and see how we end up at the end of the show. Maybe we'll do a review. We'll see how it went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And I'm about to bring up my snubbed scientists for the week because we're doing more than one because I freaking love this book. So, again, it's called Women in Science, 54. Fearless, sorry, pioneers who changed the world, and it's written and illustrated by Rachel Ignatovsky. I'm so sorry for butchering that last name. Rachel, if you're out there, we yeah, we do apologize, <laughs> but also thanks for listening. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for writing this great book. Um, so to start with, we're gonna talk about Wang um, Zini, Z H E N Y I, astronomer, poet, and mathematician. So Wang Zini was one of the greatest scholars in China. She was born in 1768 during the uh, Qing Dynasty. Q I N G. Uh, yeah. I don't know how uh, you say that. Might be closer to Qing. Again, I'm not good at Chinese either. Uh, yeah. Might be. I think it's closer to Qing. Okay. But it like yeah, it's its own particular vowel sound. At the time, China had a strict feudal system. Education was available only for the wealthy, and women were expected to cook, sew, and not be bothered by studies. Wang was fortunate to be born into a family of scholars who valued her education. Her grandfather and father taught her astronomy and math. She also travelled extensively and saw how extreme taxation affected the less fortunate. Learning about the harshness of poverty inspired her to write poetry decrying injustice. In Wang's day, eclipses were considered mysterious and beautiful, but they were not well understood. But she had theories about how they worked, and she created her own eclipse model using a mirror, a lamp, and a globe that she tied up with ropes around a table. I love that so much. It's like original experiments. She used it to prove her theories about how the moon blocks our view of the sun, or the earth blocks the lights, the sun's light from reaching the moon during an eclipse. And there were more planetary problems to solve. Wang scientifically studied the Chinese calendar system and used her telescope to measure the stars and further explain the rotation of the solar system. She was also a dedicated mathematician. Her struggles with math would often make her stop and sigh, but she pushed through those tough moments. She understood complicated arithmetic theories and at the age of 24 published a five-volume guide for beginners called Simple Principles of Calculation. This work, compiled six years after Wang's death, was prefaced by the famous scholar, I'm going to go Qi Yi, oh, I'm sorry. It's a uh, Y I J I if you want to look it up, and read by many. Wang lived only to age 29, but she is remembered as one of the greatest minds of the Qi Dynasty. She published many volumes of writing on math, astronomy, and poetry, and her work influenced legions of scientists, mathematicians, and writers who came after her. That's crazy. A five-volume like book, yeah, as a simple guide to calculations. And she's—I just love the fact that she was twenty-nine. And so this is seventeen sixty-eight. This is, you know, two hundred and fifty years before now. What, what was the uh, the book called again? Sorry, this book. Oh, so the, the book that she wrote was called "Simple Principles of Calculation," and mm. it's a five-volume guide. Do you know how she died? We don't have that information, unfortunately. This book is very much a light-hearted read, <laughs> so they've uh, kept out some of the more... Um, Historically pertinent 
Unpleasant aspects. Oh, Unpleasant wait. aspects is definitely the right word. Yeah. Well, I mean, because 29 is relatively young, but 200 years ago, life expectancy was what, late 30s? No, uh, uh, we'll see. Life expectancy, projecting life expectancy backwards in time can get difficult because a lot of the reason, maybe a lot of the reason the average life expectancy back in time is so low is infant mortality. Yeah, so uh, if you got to, I know that if you got to five, you're more likely to live to like yeah. 15. If you got to 15, you're more likely to live to 20. Yeah. And just so like so the, the higher you got, the more likely you are to live yeah. to an older age. This is why there are some, tradi- like for instance, uh, some parts of Asia, you, you they, they will have different ages with people from the West if you were born on the same day because they start counting one from your first birthday rather than out. Oh. Because you were, historically speaking, you were really likely to lose a child in that first year. Uh so you don't, you start counting after like, oh yeah, this one's going to make it. Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other thing is that, yeah, because infant mortality skews the average. So if you take infant mortality out, you often see that like, if you survived through your infancy, you were quite likely to make it to like 50, 60 and that kind of, that kind of age thing. So it, 60 for a bit high, but yeah. Oh yeah. So, but some people, quite a few people, like more people than you would expect in yeah. like, just looking at the average, make it to those higher age ages yeah but back to back to wang actually she um developed her own arguments on gravity wrote complementaries on the pythagorean theorem and other t- um trigonometric studies she was accomplished in archery and horseback riding um she understood the earth was round and described it as a ball um what a woman and she mm. loved her grandfather's huge library of books that's so cool i know while we're on the subject of the, the people like the flat earth thing or what knowing the world is round just want to like really make this clear because I think it's important for people to know. We've known the world was round for a long, long time. Uh, no, Columbus and that did not prove the world was round. Columbus was a... Terrible person. Terrible. I was going to say a swear yeah. word then. Uh, but no, like, you weren't. You were just going <laughs> to say what a male phallus is in colloquial <laughs> yeah. terms. I was, yes. was going to say that. How Oops. did you know? <laughs> but uh, basically since BC times, we have known the world was round. And in fact, a lot, like, the, not just like the, the literate aristocracy class like most people knew yeah yeah it is like a a bit of a fallacy to think that people back in the day thought the world was flat Uh, it's what frustrates me is this resurgence in flat earth theory that's going on at the moment which i honestly don't understand why is it gaining traction and popularity now when we have so much evidence and just knowledge? So there's a really, really interesting article on the conversation um, that this guy for his thesis actually did a bunch of stuff on a Flat Earth conference. And so he, he I think it was his thesis. He, were, he sat there and he was listening to the live stream. Um, and it was really interesting the way that he described it because he... so. Flat earthers really believe in the scientific process, right? They, they actually really do. What they don't believe in is authority. And so they take these processes and they try and do experiments and they basically mess it up because, you know, science is built on other people's science. But it's really interesting to kind of look at how they assume. They go, okay, I'm going to do my own experiments about this because I don't believe authority even though, like, just the idea of it is kind of skewed, but you can you can kind of understand how they That's- get that mentality that's so skewed because okay fine they are against authority but if they believe in scientific principles they know that science is a cumulative effort that keeps building on itself you'd think so i would reject the idea that they believe in scientific principles because if you can't if the the idea the earth is flat is clearly like read karl popper it's about falsifiability it's clearly falsifiable that the earth is flat like it's just not 
go out in a boat. You can see the curvature. In a desert, you can... See, it literally is visible to the naked eye. It... How do they think GPS? How do you think GPS works? Like, do you know how hard it would be to have a GPS system if we didn't have satellites revolving around? Oh the yeah, Earth? there's a, there's this great comic that um, it's like Bob and so you know the greatest minds have created these satellites that are revolving around the Earth so that everyone's got internet, and then um, the internet beams down into Bob's living room, and Bob writes something like the Earth is flat, and then all the scientists just like like head just hit yeah. their head in their hands because you know, like, I just. <laughs> Because like, I, uh, I have a friend of mine who loves to like torture me by uh, pretending to like believe in the flat Earth and then like trying to like propose models for the universe and the solar system that work mathematically with a flat Earth. No. In order to get it to work, you need to like bend so much stuff. Like you have to have the sun as like a flat disk, or either, either as a small sphere or a flat disk that's only like 500 kilometers away and it's actually a way smaller than the earth. And So it's closer than the moon. Yeah, no, the, no, but the moon's smaller and closer as well, is the whole, like you have to, because you have to, again, none of these things, like nothing exists in a vacuum. If the earth is flat, then you means you have to throw out all of astrophysics, basically. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because like all yeah. of it's based on like gravity and how those basic things yeah. work. And like so and basically like Newton's a flat earth, a flat earth is kind of like defies gravity in many ways because how I don't think gravity exists. Yeah, that's like the one you hear a lot is that it's a flat plane accelerating up underneath you sometimes is one you hear. <laughs> what force is accelerating it up? Anyway, okay, okay. who knows? <laughs> We're going to jump back in now. I'm going to do one more um <laughs> I'm going to do one more for women in science before we go to a song because we've actually been we've been this is uh this is chuffing on. along. Yeah, we're chuffing well. Chuffing well. So we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Blackwell. Do you guys know who she is? Uh, no. I remember that name, but See, I've, I've been trying to pick ones that I thought we wouldn't know because I thought there was a couple of Nobel Prizes in here, Nadia, and I was like, oh, yeah, oh, she's won a Nobel Prize. We've already done her. <laughs> <laughs> so this one is about Elizabeth Blackwell, who was a doctor. Elizabeth Blackwell had no interest in medicine until a friend of hers died from what was most likely uterine cancer. Her friend said she might have experienced less pain and suffering if only she had a female doctor. This put Elizabeth on the path to becoming the first woman medical doctor in the United States. Elizabeth was born into a family of abolitionists in 1821 with an upbringing that valued justice and equality. While working as a school teacher, she was mentored by a male doctor friend, by male doctor friends and read books from their medical libraries. Although many didn't believe it was possible, she was accepted into Geneva Medical College. Medical school is hard for any student, but Elizabeth faced additional challenges. Often met with hostility, she had to sit separately from the male students, and her teachers were embarrassed by her presence during anatomy classes. When asked to leave a lecture about reproduction to protect her delicate sensibilities, she argued her way into staying. Were they practical demonstrations? And like, with like what? There was just I don't know. A woman. <laughs> yeah, seeing I, a naked body. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you right now, like. Women have seen penises. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not all of them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's happened before. There's wonder, historical precedent. I wonder what they thought would happen to this <laughs> this poor woman for seeing, you know, perfectly human male or female anatomy. Yeah. Or maybe they're about to describe averages and she's about to go, nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. This is, this is the 1820s. I don't think she would have had that much experience with them. Yeah, but she probably had a bit more experience. Well, she probably had a bit more truth-telling than, <laughs> than some of those people standing up. <laughs> During the summer, she worked at a hospital in Philadelphia and saw how the hospital conditions contributed to the spread of infectious disease. The experience inspired her thesis on how good hygiene could prevent the spread of ty typhus. In 1849, she graduated from Geneva Medical College, first in her class. 
Elizabeth's sister, Emily, also became a doctor, together with Dr. Marie or Zach Rizelkska. I'm so sorry. They <laughs> opened uh, the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children in 1857. By the book, people, so you don't have to rely on Jacinta's pronunciation. I know, I'm so bad. Um, it was a place for the poor to get treatment and for female medical students and nurses to learn. In the 1800s, there was little known about communicable diseases, and hand washing was not mandatory for doctors like it is today. It was very common for doctors to go straight from treating someone with the flu to delivering a baby with without even washing up. This caused the spread of disease like typhus. Elizabeth Elizabeth realised that prevention is better than cure, and in her lectures she advocated for better hygiene standards in hospitals and homes. Elizabeth went on and founded the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary in 1868 and the London School of Medicine for Women around 1874. An inspiration to many women, she also made it possible for many of them to become doctors. Ooh. So cool. One thing that baffles me is doctors in those time not practicing hygiene. I, they, they didn't know it was a problem. Like, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. But um, you still kind of think you might want to wash foreign bodies off your hands before rooting around inside someone's guts. Mm. She has some really cool like bits as well. So in 1849, while caring for a baby's gonorrhea, um, she. In gonorrhea-infected eye, Elizabeth became infected herself and lost sight in one eye. So from 1849, she actually wore an eye patch. Oh, that's badass. Yeah. Um, she helped training, train union nurses with her sister during the Civil War. She started the National Health Society Hashtag in solidarity London. forever. Yeah. Trained in Paris and London maternity wards after medical school. Um, and she was accepted into medical school when the student body voted yes. As a practical joke, she showed up anyway. Good. <laughs> Amazing. Good so old good. Absolute gangster. I know. This is why I love this book so much. It's like these sick women just doing awesome things in a way that's like, I don't know, it just feels very feels very nice. It empowering. Feels, yeah, empowering is the right word. Definitely Maybe a good one for Mother's a, Day. With a dash with a dash of inspiration. Of course. So um I think we've got a surprise tangent. Oh yeah, a real quick. Because just men we'll on Flood Earth a little while and I just wanted to mention one of my favorite conspiracy theories that is related to the it is an offshoot of the Flat Earth variety. It's like what Flat Earthers are to like regular people. I think these people are two flat earthers. <laughs> um, so the insanest of the insane. Uh, it, I go, it goes further. Like you, th- This is an in-depth, a, a bottomless pit. Okay. All uh, right. Good. But, uh, I'm ready. Trees aren't real, oh. which mm-hmm. is to say that uh, all trees that you think are trees are pale imitations of what were once trees. And uh, mountains were once trees. What? <laughs> but why do they think that? Where's the, where's the logic? Give me some logic. Because, like, mountains look kind like... There's, Wait. like, some mountains look kind of like big tree stumps. But if trees aren't real and all trees are, like, ghosts of former trees, weren't the former trees real? Well, like... Or maybe more accurately, forests aren't real anymore. Because what we think of forests are these pale shadow imitation forms of what were... Literally, like, mountains were once giant trees. And, like, depending on who you ask, sometimes people cut them down and use them to do things. And sometimes... They just go away. Like, That's just stupid like, theory. You can't ask me to logic your way through this one. But like, at least like Flat Earth is like, well, you can't see the curve. It's like it, it's stupid, but like, kind of makes sense. Like, if you do, if you think of it really like superficially, like <laughs> no, how you, there's no you, trees. I, yeah, Flat Earth, Flat Earth is you can conceive of somebody who like is in a position where they can't see the curvature of the Earth. They don't understand any of the mathematics or the science behind. And they haven't thought GPS about GPS and astronomy, or they don't want to believe the pictures of the Earth. Are real from yeah. NASA, yeah. 
or like they I can understand you can you can imagine a person who has like just so who is completely unable to grasp how those things and has never had it explained to them how those things work and so just finds it impossible to believe in them. Like you can kind of imagine that. Same thing with evolution. You can kind of imagine someone who's never had it real and like they just fail to like go okay, I can see how there's a logical chain from there to there. But like trees aren't real. That's so stupid. It's uh, beyond. I think a lot of logic. it's sort of based. What about bushes? What well, about like, all plants? Well, no, like they're they're just like pale shadow imitations. But so can... they are real. It's just that mountains are trees, is what you're saying. Yeah, it all depend again because like this is this is a variety. There's a diversity of thought. Some people might tell you that uh, some of the tre- all trees that you think are trees now are like literally made after the fact and re like. Made by people after the These fact. people are smoking something very wrong. They're smoking uh, trees. Trees, yeah. <laughs> that aren't real. Fake <laughs> trees. But uh, that's tangent over. All right, it's not I'm worth gonna, talking about. I'm going to go talk about someone called Karen Horney, who is a psychoanalyst in the time of Freud. Um, Karen Horney was born in Germany in 1885. In the early 1900s, psychology emerged as the new social science that researched how the mind worked. Sigmund Freud, Freud, I can't even say it. That's so embarrassing. Freud was the father of psychoanalytic theory and his ideas were the basis of how everyone practiced at the time. Freudian theory focused mainly on male minds and posited that women wished they were men and therefore suffered from penis envy. How much does that say about Freud? There's like, (laughs) oh yeah, everyone definitely wants to be me. (laughs) Honestly, I would love to have a penis just to play around and pee everywhere, but... (laughs) You know, I'm not that envious. (laughs) Well, actually, Karen did something really interesting. So Karen studied medicine at many schools, including the University of Berlin, where she earned her medical degree. Her own battles with depression inspired her to study psychology. She was mentored mentored and analyzed by Carl Abraham and was well-versed in Freudian theory. She started treating her own patients and began officially teaching at the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute in 1920. Through her many clinical studies, she began to observe behavior that did not fit the framework of Freudian theory, leading her to rebel against everything she had been taught. Karen argued that society didn't allow women to have any real power, but instead forced them to live through their husbands and children. She theorized that women didn't want to become men, they just wanted the independence that men had. <laughs> I, I love how it took, I, it took it, it, of course it took a woman to go like, we actually kind of want the stuff that you have. <laughs> we don't really need to be men. <laughs> we just want the freedom and basic human rights. It is kind of like, the, like you ever see like, the really wealthy you see in the media sometimes like really wealthy people writing opinion pieces which basically sum up to people who want more social justice type stuff are just jealous of rich people <laughs> it's like, like no <laughs> like well like kind of in that we want what the you stuff have. you've yeah. got because like it makes life easier and we think people should have it yeah it seems like a it seems like a basic thing that everyone should be uh anyway um <laughs> she argued that society shapes a person's perception of self-worth in doing this she created the field of feminist psychology karen moved to america in 1932 and worked with the new school for social research and the new york psychoanalytic institute there she created a new theory of new Neurosis. Yeah. She realized that anxiety is not just shaped by our biological urges, but also is caused by the environment in which we grow up. This neo-Freudian therapy meant that people could learn to cope with their anxieties and eventually not need therapy. This directly contradicted Freud's theories and Karen faced a fierce backlash, which eventually forced her out of the New York Psychoanalytic Institute in 1941. Despite this, she continued to write many books and papers and founded the Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysts. 
Karen Horney created a new way of thinking about ourselves, society, and anxiety. She is still considered one of the most influential psycho um, psychologists ever. Hmm. Amazing! I love this book so much. Go and buy so it. Good. Buy it for your family. Buy it for your dog. I don't care. I wonder what uh, Freud would have thought about her surname. Yeah, I was just thinking that, right? <laughs> she actually um, she inspired the term womb envy. Um, the Horny Clinic in New York is named after her. The uh, Karen Horny Clinic. Amazing. Um, and yeah, she founded the American Journal of Psychoanalysis. Uh, um, I can't say it. Analysts. 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 Anal- uh, I don't know. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah, very cool. Is womb envy like analogous to penis envy mm. where men wish they had a womb to like yeah. grow a child They in? wish they could carry a child. Yeah. Now I've seen that. That looks horrible. It looks horrible. Not going to lie. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I've, I've got mixed feelings about siring a child in my stomach. No, just, I've had, fr- I've had, fr- I'm just talking about the literal experience of of bearing a child to term. I have friends who have been pregnant, and it look like, yeah, that looks terrible. It, it's. I definitely don't have any kind of. I don't have. I would not want that in my body at all. But there are some people who really like appreciate the being a woman and being pregnant, and that's yeah. something that they they really want to do. For me, I would. I'm interested in the sensation of actually growing a human, but <laughs> surely yeah. you could just like that sounds like a terrible like I'm going to yeah. grow a human to work because I want to know what it feels like. But but that's the whole thing. Like being capable of doing it makes you intrigued and oh. interested in the process. Don't you're wrong. The idea of it is 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 fascinating, but I do think the idea of it is very different to the reality it, yeah, of it. Because like. I'm going to tell you right now, the idea of it does not involve you having to deal with hemorrhoids and hormonal swings that just make you want to... Like giant, like puffy feet and... Apparently your bones get a lot less... Um, Dense. Yeah, they, they lose a lot of... Calcium. The calcium comes out of your bones yeah. to feed the... To get the baby's you know, you, bones. Like the baby is basically like... A parasite. A parasite, yeah. A tiny yeah. leech. It is like... A, it's literally a parasite. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital and Nadia. Yes. Please tell me these stories. Do we have a, we've got a content warning there, right? Well, I, I think it's more just if you don't enjoy hearing about um, things that are sexual in nature, probably tune out. But this book is called Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, The Definitive Guide to the Evolutionary Biology of Sex. And it's written by Olivia Judson and published in 2002. And I absolutely adore this book. It's written in the form of a sex advice column. Some to animals though, right? Uh, from animals to Dr. Tatiana. Of course. Um, and basically it asks a whole bunch of like random questions and the species range from obviously um, bigger animals to things like uh, algae and all of those types of organisms. I love it. So it's really, really good. Again, it's written in... Like a sex advice column. And it was what, first published in 2002? Yeah. So you might not be able to get a copy, maybe. Oh, no, you can get a copy quite easily. Um, I've ordered copies, I think, from Demox and stuff. The book I originally got was from Lifeline Bookfest. So I have seen the book floating around there like every year. There's one or two copies I've noticed. And yeah, so it's it's pretty easy to get. Just Google it. Oh, I should have said actually that my gift, um, my book came as a gift as well from my fabulous aunts over in New York. But you can definitely get it here because I've seen it around. Yeah, I actually ordered um, this book for one of my friends for their birthdays after I read it. So it's pretty easy. Um, the first little excerpt I'm going to be reading um, starts like this. Dear Dr. Tatiana, I'd prefer to keep my identity a secret since I'm writing to you not about me or my species, but about my noisy neighbors, a group of chimpanzees. When those girls come into heat, it's enough to make a harlot blush. Yesterday, I saw a girl screw eight different fellows in 15 minutes. Another time, I saw one swing between seven fellows. 
going at it 84 times in eight days. Why are they such sluts? <laughs> Mind-boggling and eye-popping in the Ivory Coast. I mean, let's be real here. This, <laughs> that person's a bit of a... Uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't um, be staring at your neighbours so much. That's no. all I'm saying. Dr. Tatiana's response. You raise an excellent question. The extraordinary promiscuity of female chimpanzees has intrigued many a scientist. And to be frank, we don't know why they are so incredibly wild. However, two theories are regularly banded about. The first is that female chimpanzees mate promiscuously to create competition between sperm from different males. In other words, sperm competition is not merely the consequence of females mating with more than one male, but the cause, I know that this sounds outlandish, but it gets wheeled out to excuse the uh, licentious behavior of females in many species. So it's an idea worth scrutinizing. Here how, here's how it's supposed to work. The starting assumption is that some males are much better at fertilizing eggs than others. The reason that they are better doesn't matter much. What matters is their ability is heritable. That is, excellence at fertilizing eggs must have a genetic basis and those genes must be handed from father to son. Then, females who sleep around and thereby encourage sperm competition will have sons who are better at fertilizing eggs than females who mate once. The evidence, however, is circumstantial at best. I don't deny that it's possible, but I have yet to see a rigorous demonstration that setting up a sperm race is the main reason that females of any species sleep around. Although biologists have arranged endless contests to find out who wins when sperm are in competition, a huge number of variables affect the outcome. There is no general rule. Sometimes it's a question of who's on first. Sometimes it's a matter of timing. Sometimes it depends on the number of males competing and so on. Certainly, many of the variables are not under genetic control. In the rat, for example, the female's reproductive tract is bifurcated, and the outcome of sperm competition often differs between the left and right halves. But suppose you succeed in showing that one guy always beats everyone else. That does not mean his superiority is passed to his sons. At least one crucial ingredient for successful sperm cannot be passed from father to son, namely the engines that sperm need in order to mitochondria. move. Mitochondria. There we go. <laughs> These engines are known as mitochondria. They are tiny organs that generate energy for cells. In most animals, mitochondria are inherited from the mother. Can engine trouble ruin a guy's chances at fertilizing eggs? You bet. Faulty mitochondria can cause infertility in men, rams, and roosters, for example. Conversely, some guys with otherwise unremarkable sperm may find their moves as if turbocharged, as if someone put rocket engine <laughs> engines on their wheelbarrow. So you see the difficulty. Just demonstrating that one guy's sperm is consistently more competitive is not enough. You have to show that it is due to characteristic that can be inherited. I'd even guess that unreliable engines could explain why sperm tend to be larger and more numerous and more complicated in species where there is sperm competition. All those other traits are heritable and may partially compensate for unreliable engines. The second theory aims to explain why female chimp chimpanzees are so promiscuous is the obfuscation theory. The idea here is that by mating with every guy in sight, females can create confusion over the paternity of their child. And clearly, if a girl's enjoyed the gangbangs you've described, even she won't know who's the dad. <laughs> Why would this be an advantage? Well, perhaps if the male thinks a child may be his, he'll from refrain from killing it. Infanticide is a risk. After all, male chimpanzees do sometimes murder infants. But whether they are more likely to murder the children of females they haven't copulated with is for now a mystery. As for you, if your biology allows for it, Marta suggests moving to a nice neighborhood. 
Ah. You can see that this book's written with a lot of wit in mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really good. And for me, who enjoys um, bits of evolutionary biology, I really like evolutionary biology. And finding out like the behavior of animals is just, this book is great for it. Now, one of my favorite um, excerpts from this book is in the chapter, Let's Slip the Whores of War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so some of the chapters are named quite like brilliantly. And this one starts, Dear Dr. Tatiana, I am a marine iguana, and I am appalled by the behavior of, young, of the young iguanas of today. I keep encountering groups of youths masturbating at me. It's revolting. I'm sure they didn't dare act this way in Darwin's time. How can I make them stop? And that's by Disgusted in the Galapagos. <laughs> I love the names of the like animals writing yeah, in as well. No, it's, it's top tier. <laughs> So Dr. Tatiana responds, I get a lot of letters from young male marine iguanas. <laughs> Frustrated because the girls ignore them. Yeah, we've all been, like, uh, my, my, my young male iguana friend, marine iguana friends, they, they keep coming to me. I don't know what it is in the young keep, male iguana community right now, but they're feeling really isolated. Keep and coming to you or keep coming at you? Both. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there are some humans that are in the same. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but this is the first time I've heard uh, complaints from the other side. Look at it from the guy's point of view. Here he is, a tasteful shade of red, his spiky crest a full 20 centimeters from his crown of his tail. He's ready to go, desperate to use one or the other of his penises. Yes, like many reptiles, <laughs> he has two, a left and a right penis. Hemipenis, as they're known. Mm. Are they actually called hemipenis? Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. But being young and therefore small, he doesn't have much of a chance. It isn't just you ladies prefer to mate with older, bigger males. It's that even if he manages to mount a female, the odds are he'll be shoved aside by a bigger fellow before he climaxes. That's why young males masturbate when they see a girl go by. Wanking reduces the time they need to ejaculate during sex <laughs> and thus reduces the risk of being interrupted before they climax. So I'm afraid this behavior may be here to stay. Young wankers probably sigh more <laughs> children than those who abstain. Damn, this is like, that's some cutthroat stuff going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I needed to know that fact. <laughs> well, the the letter does go on for a while, but it goes into different sizes of testicles. <laughs> of course it does. What do marine iguana testicles look like? I, I haven't uh, uh, examined them. Haven't. <laughs> I haven't examined them. Um, Dr. Tatiana goes on and talks about masturbating, and she says, does anybody else masturbate? Yes. In many primates, individuals of both sexes masturbate a lot. Actually, we saw, so we went to, um, <laughs> I was in Bali a couple weeks ago, we went to the monkey temple, and yes, there was, we did watch mm -hmm. one, like, it was like licking, it was so weird, it was like licking this like rock, and then it just like masturbated, came, and then licked that, and we were all like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of salts and proteins and stuff. I know, but oh, it was so gross. It's literally everything you need for life. <laughs> no, it's not. It's literally Sorry. half of what you need for life. I mean, it's got the right atoms. <laughs> but then again, like, that's not saying much. I mean, like a soybean has the right atoms. <laughs> oh, gosh. So take the Suti Magabi, a smoke-colored monkey from West Africa with a long tail and extravagant tufts of whiskers on its cheeks. Some females use their hands to stimulate themselves during sex. Male and female orangutans stimulate themselves with sex toys they've made out of leaves or twigs. One female chimpanzee, 
who was raised in a human household, masturbated to a copy of Playgirl, thrilling to the photos of naked human males, especially the centerfold. Other mammals masturbate too. Male red deer do it by rubbing the tips of their antlers through the grass. The whole act takes 15 seconds from start to spurt. And during oh, start to spurt. Oh. And during the breeding season, some stags masturbate several times a day. But does anyone else do it like marine iguanas, out of fear of being interrupted in bed? Frankly, the matter hasn't been subject to much research. There's been more work on related topic. Big balls. <laughs> big balls are a more conventional way for small males to increase the odds of fertilizing eggs. The logic is simple. In species where small males have to sneak to mate, they are guaranteed to be at risk of sperm competition. As you know, sperm competition is often like a raffle. More tickets, more chances. Therefore, small males who invest in a larger proportion of their bodies in making sperm can buy more raffle tickets and better their chances of success whenever they mate. Meanwhile, large males, as long as they are reasonably effective at guarding females, do not need so many tickets for such a big tackle. That's why there's often no relation between... Do you just like this book because of how many like like sex puns there are in there? <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> like, it's got everything. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy reading this book for the puns and also like the science. <laughs> puns and science. 10 out of 10. Of course. This is why there's often no relation between the dimensions of a man and the dimensions of his privates. Bigger men do not necessarily have bigger bits. Indeed, more's the pity. It's often the opposite. The painful midshipman, otherwise known as a California singing fish, takes this to extremes. Males have either big brains or big balls. The brainy kind excavate cave-like nests beneath rocks in the intertidal zone. Once a male has prepared a nest, he hums to attract females. A single humming bout can last for a quarter of an hour. Thus he has large muscles for humming and extra neurons to control muscles. When a female arrives, she slowly lays her eggs in the ceiling of the nest. As she does this, the male quivers behind her every few minutes, a sign he is releasing sperm. When she's done, which can last as long as 20 hours after laying the first egg, he throws her out of the nest so he can guard the fertilized eggs and sing to attract more females. <laughs> the other type of male, the one with the big balls, sneaks into the nest at the crucial moment. These fellows can hum, a can't hum. They lack the mental and physical apparatus. The best they can do is grunt, but boys, they are well hung. <laughs> As a proportion of his weight, a sneak has gonads nine times heavier than a brainy male does. His gonads are so large that his stomach bulges as if he was pregnant. No wonder he grunts. So you brainy types out there shouldn't feel too smug. Your position is only snafe, safe if sneaks are rare. If sneaks are common, then you're at greater risk of sperm competition and should invest more in making sperm. Thus, you should have larger balls. <laughs> Oh my god! That's a fascinating little dynamic. It's like it, it, I'm sure there, there'd be something in that book about the um, the that species of lizard that has like three different chest colors for males. That yes, it does talk about that. Yeah, uh, the sneaking and the competition, um, and how uh, whether you are like an alpha quote unquote male yeah. or you're a sneaky male. And like, yeah, there's like the lizards have like the three tiered system that goes like alpha, well, depending on alpha, beta, and like sneaker, mm. where the alphas always like basically roused off the beta mid-tier lizards, mid-sized lizards. But because they're so alpha and arrogant, they don't care about the smallest sneaker males, so they still get away with it. And eventually like they can shift the population back in their direction. But 
the mid tier one, the mid size lizards do worry about the uh, the sneaker males. So when they're in charge, they will push the sneaker ones out. But then a bigger alpha lizard might come off and push them off. So there's like this constant dynamic between uh, these three kinds of males. So they go through. It's really weird. It's fascinating. Was just, uh, doing I punched a, a microphone. <laughs> I was I was gesticulating. Yeah. It's it's basically too how forcefully. all those males like establish him, themselves in the population. Mm. Um, actually, Futurama did a really good like episode on evolutionary biology. Dude. One of the more recent episodes, which kind of it was like a mo- it was like a montage one where it had like three or four different stories. Yeah. Yes, um, and it talks about like the iguanas and the lizards and the sneaky males. Mm, it's a really good one. Um, so Nadia, mm-hmm. I think we've got another story. Yes. So the next excerpt from Dr. Tatiana's Sex is About to All Creation goes like this. Dear Dr. Tatiana, my son cuts a fine figure of a manatee, and I'm very proud of him, but there's one problem. He keeps kissing other males. What can I do to straighten him out? And that's by Don't Want No Homo in the Florida Keys. <laughs> I, I gotta say, uh, well, how, do you, how do they describe the son? The a, a fine figure of a manatee. Uh, the the pun on the man manatee there is is top tier. You just don't see that kind of punnery <laughs> in your average sort of day to day life. I just wanted to take a moment to really appreciate it. Appreciate the puns. It, it's it's just good craftsmanship. Yeah, this book is great. Um, so Dr. Tatiana's response: It's not your son who needs straightening out. It's you. Oh, Ooh, Ooh, off woo. the bat. I know. Some homosexual activity is common for animals of all kinds. Look at the bonobo, a central creature also known as the pygmy chimpanzee, which is odd as it's no smaller than a regular chimpanzee. (laughs) Bonobos like sex, and female bonobos like sex with each other. One lies on her back, another climbs on top, and they rub genitalia. Among Adelia penguins, one of the smaller penguins in Antarctica, the males, like most birds, have no penis. But that doesn't stop a bit of gay jiggery-pokery. In one record incident, two males bow to each other as they would to a female. Then one lay down on his front, raised his bill and tail like many um, coquettish girls, penguin, and the other copulated with him, ejaculating into his genitalia tract. They then swap roles. Or look at dolphins. The bottlenose dolphin is uh, Catholic in its choice of sex partners. Males are frequently sighted, copulating with turtles. They insert their penises into the soft tissues at the back of their victim's shell. With sharks and even with eels. Oh, that's so gross. Dolphins are gross. <laughs> I, I do want to say, uh, I do like the ones before the dolphins. What, what animal was it again? The uh, uh, the penguins? The penguins, like, it, it's nice that they take turns. Yeah, that's hmm. that's consensual right and, there. And the penguin, the, the dolphins are not consensual. Also, that turtle is not enjoying it. Yeah, and I just I just like the mutual gratitude. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm done. Your turn now. It's like, <laughs> that's very civilized. On you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when a dolphin's penis is erect, it has a hook at the end, and many a male will use it to hook writh- a writhing, struggling eel. So it should be no surprise that males also copulate with each other, inserting their penises into each other's genital-, genital slits. The Amazon River dolphin, or boto, sometimes goes further, penetrating another dolphin's blowhole. So I wouldn't worry about a little kissing. <laughs> <laughs> Dolphins are gross. I, I have no respect for dolphins. <laughs> well, they, they're pretty intelligent. And they're intelligent, but they're intelligent enough to, like, be gross. Like, they're intelligent enough to go and, like... Oh, well, humans are no better. Come on. No, of course well, they're not. Yeah. But I am a human, so I kind of have to, you know... Dolphins rape people. They do. They rape They rape everything. They'll just, like... There's, like, there'll be groups of dolphins that'll go and, like, find a female and just, like... like They'll actually, like... It's, it's so not good. 
Otters as well. Otters are a bit like that. And they're smart enough, you know, they're smart enough that I don't think it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're saying they have some form of morality? Well, I feel like, I just feel like it's just a bit gross. Like, Like, you're smart enough to know better dolphins. I I just think that they should, yeah, they should be not terrible people. Are you angry? Not terrible dolphins. Are you not angry, but just disappointed? I am both. Is it just because they always look like they're smiling? They're just, they're creepy. I, I just don't like them. I mean, just like, don't like them. Even like whale sex is like just normal. Even normal whale sex is like kind of terrifying. I mean, whales are terrifying. No, but like a bunch of male whales like pin a female whale close to the surface and then like another male will like get up and like maneuver. Google. I don't know if I want to hear yeah, this. Yeah, YouTube. It. It's like, it's, it's almost indescribable. It's, uh, it's an experience. Mm, <laughs> no, no, thank you. Okay. Uh, what are we doing now? What are we, are we, we've well, got. We can carry on, and um, I think I'm just going to talk about a couple of, like, rather than go into the evolutionary biology, because it's, it's quite detailed talking about the basis of homosexuality. Um, I'm just going to read a couple more of, like, the questions in the book, I just because they're fun to, fun to chat about. That sounds good. Um, and this one goes, Dear Dr. Tatiana, we see hairs of the species Apelis Ap- uh, californica. We've been having a fabulous orgy, being both male and female. We all get to play both roles at once. That's right. Each of us play male, uh, plays male to the sea hair in front and female to the sea hair behind. And often the party rocks on for days. It's such a great system. So much better than being just male or female. Perfect societies don't exist. That <laughs> <laughs> we're mystified. I think I got her. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Well, basically, that's the crux of the question. <laughs> they mystified why aren't all living things hermaphrodites. Oh, and uh, I'm sure Tatiana has an incredible <laughs> answer for them. Well, she starts, and that's uh, the uh, letter is by Group Sexist in Santa Catalina. <laughs> Actually, speaking of uh, Santa Catalina, have you seen the the great... Uh, Sorry, Netflix show that actually has no relation to whatsoever. Never mind me. No, no, no go on. I want to know now. <laughs> we'll talk in the break. Okay, anyway. Okay, right. So Dr. Tatiana replies, Orgies beneath the waves. I can just see it. A cozy copulating chain of beautiful creatures that resemble snails who've lost their shells and are hiding the fact with delicate colored folds of membranes. So slugs. Yeah. You see hairs are obviously so intent on your orgies that you are ignorant of the ways of other hermaphrodites. Not all hermaphrodites have orgies. They get up to all kinds of other um, hanky-panky instead. <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh, Izzy, do we want to like bring this uh, feeling down a bit with uh, some uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. intense uh, book? I do also. It's not that intense. I do, I do also want to say, like, it's interesting how like hermaphrodites can actually form part of uh, a sort of like what we might consider a more sort of orthodox by... Uh, sexual binary like where a lot of plants are a lot of a lot of, like there are kind of like two sexes in a lot of plants again this is not trying to draw a big conclusion for all plant life this is like very yeah caveat is there now uh a lot of plants have a sexual binary but their binary is not between male and female it's between female and hermaphrodite oh yeah yeah that's the issue because like cause you kind of consider like, oh you know if, there's lots of hermaphrodites. Surely they're all just be hermaphrodites, but no. Interesting. Mm. Okay, so my book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. 
is well, like, well, I'll read the, I'll read the subtitle for everyone, which is a short history of everybody for the last thirteen thousand years, <laughs> and like anyone, any that's a bit. Yeah. It's like, a bit of a stretch. Yes. Like anything that tries to condense a lot of these things into a single book, it flattens and oversimplifies a lot of things, but it also gets a lot <sighs> of things Have you right. seen a YouTube video where it's like history of everything? Is it, oh, is, so it good. is it the Bill Worst one? Oh, yes. The 20 minute video. Yeah. yeah the history yeah, of everything, yeah, like I guess. Yeah, yeah, Bill Worst. Bill Worst, yeah, I think oh. I have seen it. It's you guys should, uh, instead of reading this book, you should go and um, watch that video. Well, that's also <laughs> interesting, but it, it, it also flattens and gets things. Of course. Yes, but I think up, yeah. for, it's a brilliant um, it's well like summary. And mm. the, it's such a good way that he's communicated like yeah. science and history of the world. It's, yeah, yeah. it's done so well. I think I've watched that video like at least 10 times <laughs> just because I enjoy it so yeah, much. It's very cool. Well, so Jared Diamond, we'll start off who who the guy is. So the author is Jared Diamond, and he is a professor of physiology at, uh, damn it, where is he a professor of physiology at? Uh, University of California Medical School. Uh, he's also been sort of like a, might call him like a biogeographer kind of thing. He's, he's done like a lot of really good work in that particular field. And the book itself is best when it hews closest to his chosen field of physiology, basically. Uh and it seeks to sort of come up with reasons why history has sort of played out the way it has. In that, like, why did European colonialism happen in the 19th century? Why did different societies develop in the way they do? And seeks to find some sort of, in, like, basically find environmental determining factors for that. Uh, and right away, you can see a bit of a, like, you know, a bit of the flattening going on here where. While environmental and geographic factors are clearly incredibly powerful, uh, powerful influences on how things play out in history and how things develop, they are not the only thing that exists. So it, it, just by trying to find these kinds of things, you do so, uh, by setting this sort of premise, you do sort of open yourself up to a lot of bias and misconception. That's not to say it's not a useful thing to do, though. Uh, for instance, there's a lovely point that he makes about where agriculture developed where sort of like what we would sort of consider the again like that orthodox traditional form of agriculture the way that sedentary agriculture where you sort of sit down you start making permanent settlements and dedicate That's how trade yeah developed and well, well, well there was a need to to actually grow things yeah. well once people figured out that they can grow things and control well, um it, a supply well this is it's a variety of things because like we do sort of know that when you start having the sort of large agricultural developments, you get people can, the amount of people you have can increase. The sheer amount of vet food increases population and it naturally lends itself to the creation of population centers, uh, sort of like centralized regions for the storing and collection and tallying of food and that kind of thing. And you can see how this sort of naturally facilitates the development of like buildings and things like that because where more people gather in one spot that lead and they don't move around as much at least more permanent settlements society yeah uh and there's some really interesting case points he points out here because like you look at somewhere like australia for instance and you don't see many much of that kind of farming at all despite the fact that it is one of the oldest continue like it contains the oldest continuous cultures in the entire world and you can start to think of some reasons why. And then he points out, uh, for instance, the world distribution of large seeded grass species. When you look at our crops even today, uh, like 12 crops make up 
the vast, vast, vast majority of calories human beings consume. So, like, you things like rice, corn, wheat. Though it, and potatoes. They're, and they're very simple. No, no. Rice, corn, and wheat are outweighed potatoes by a long shot. Uh, and you can see they're also similar things. They're these uh, large-seeded grasses. And if you look at the distribution of such large-seeded grasses, you will find quickly that of the, li- of like, of the top-tier large-seed grasses, that the Mediterranean zone in uh, West Asia, Europe, North Africa, you know, that, that Mediterranean zone, contains 32 of the world's largest of the world's large feed grass uh, species. If you go to say Australia, you drop down to two species of them. And Beastia spinifex. Yes, <laughs> but along with other factors like uh, the protein content of certain of these of these species, you can see like there seems to be a level of reward, like a little of the energy that you devote to making your food. You need a level of reward back in order to make it worthwhile in an environment which yeah. Ca- yeah and especially you need it you need that to be competitive with your traditional hunter gatherer lifestyle otherwise there's no impetus to really stop doing what you've been doing for and in the case of australians that would have been just gathering yeah but in in the case of australia if you look around there aren't historically speaking there aren't a lot of the and like this australia is just an example there are obviously this goes to other places there aren't really a lot of, well, any major plants that you could easily cultivate that have that give you back that energy, protein, reward that you need in order to make it viable. And this could sort of be why the the fire stick farming methods that uh, come, that came to rise in Australia were like rose over, say sort of orthodox view of what agriculture is where you settle in a region and you plow and you farm and you and you irrigate because simply speaking the crops on the ground in the region aren't good for it so you, why would you do it and uh one thing that i think this also like this is a really useful idea to come up with a really useful sort of extension of this idea is that there isn't a particularly inherently better uh sort of system of agricultural society there is that some society like some set of setups are better in different conditions and in different environments and i wish this was a point that jared diamond would sort of like take on board a bit more with his other ideas because like he's quite good when it comes to this sort of like idea of food cult of food production and the like idea how oh how would this affect society and again that's because it's very much linked to that his physiological background here but for instance, we'll say we'll start talk uh, when it comes to actually no, we'll stick to some good points first. We'll go through some good points, and like another good point, another interesting idea. He's lost the book, by the way. No, the book's right here. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not reading it. Oh, I, I've got excerpts in it, and I've got a, I've got a word document that I've oh, read a bunch of points up for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so large, an- like, so predict the other thing about it is uh, domesticated animals. Uh, there are only certain animals. There are only very, 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 very few animals in the world. That we've actually domesticated. Uh, things like so cows, sheep, horses, those kinds of things. Dogs, cats, Do- dogs are like really far back. Yeah, bunnies. And even cats aren't as domesticated as say dogs. No, are. they've only been domesticated for what nine thousand years. Where oh, dogs are about fifteen thousand. Do- dogs are like way, dogs way are older. Way, dog, like, it's really hard to tell with dogs because. It is a lot of evidence we have actually these days points to the fact that dogs kind of chose us rather than we chose dogs. In that, that we started leaving scraps around camps, friendly wolves hung out. 
found they were trainable. Yeah, and we fed like you know you feed the ones that can, and like eventually you build up a fall. Um, like there is a there's like a give and take mm. in that sort, of, and you can see how a symbiotic relationship can develop. It's good to have a friend around that in dire needs you could eat. And also, it's good to have a friend around who's just sleeping around the camp who has better. Is that the dog's view or the human's view? Both. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's also good to have a friend around who is like really good night vision and hearing. Yeah, that's true. When that like true. it's just like, oh, what's that? This like we're we're in danger and this dog can hear you and like wake you up. It, it's that's also a really good thing to have. Yeah. Not to mention uh, how like we've used each other to hunt. But they also, but sorry, the, the point that he draws out though is that there are some things that deme- animals that were domesticated have in common. And I, at this point, I should tease out the difference between domestication and taming. Uh, domestication sort of implies a level of transformation of the other organism by us. In like that, the dog's ears. Yeah, like they. It, it, I don't know if you guys know this, but wolf more wild dogs have stiffer ears. The more domestic you are, the floppier the ears. Sort of yeah, and get. that happens in rabbits and a bunch yeah. of other species as well. Yeah, happens. Yeah, happens in a lot of species. Uh, but it's not going further than that. It's like you need again. You need a certain level of reward and a certain level of ease of training to do it. Uh, the big, one of the best point people, one of the good case studies people like to use for this one is horses versus zebras because in your head you're like they're kind of similar animals, mm. and like the one's better equipped for our purposes. Well, well now it is. Now it is. But you got to remember that they were domesticated that way. That's why they like that. Uh, but horses, uh, sorry, zebras have an inbuilt, uh, sorry, inherent ducking reflex with their head. It makes them incredible, like way skittish. Har- yeah, and it makes them way harder to rope when you like when you're roping a horse. Than it in a horse because they don't because ha- horses don't have that inherent duck reflex. Uh, also, the social structure of zebras is different to horses. Uh, basically, every big mammal that we've ever domesticated has a sort of more vertical, rigidy uh, social structure because you can break that social structure and put yourself at the top, and that allows for the domestication of a herd because like they can all you don't have to like individually wrangle. You don't have to wrangle a group of individuals. You can wrangle a herd. And that is way easier. Uh, this and this is like sort of why horses are domesticated while zebras are not. Is like one of the reasons. Of course, there's a, mil- a multitude of factors that go into this, but this is like sort of a thing that is true across quite a number of our domestic species. For instance, buffalo. We farm, but nowadays we farm buffalo a bit, but even then it's harder. It is much harder to farm and domesticate a one-ton animal that to this day can like still kills a bunch of people every year than it is to farm and domesticate a cow or a boar. Uh, so those sorts of factors come in and how, like, so what domestic animals you have, ac- what animals you have access to around you and your ability to domesticate them definitely impacts the society that you're in. And of course, the environment that those animals are actually in yeah. does have an impact on whether they can or can't be domesticated. I mean, zebras in you know african plains are a lot more different to horses in the americas yeah. i imagine yeah and it, it also comes across like this is another idea like because like domesticating animals was also sort of very very key in various agricultural revolutions because it's not just uh, the other thing that the domestic animals we have the big mammals i'm talking about here so not moving away from dogs to like big mammals mostly meat animals they pro- also provide more than one thing they produce food manure clothing and also work power animals being used in agriculture is incredibly important as an agricultural revolution type thing 
think about how much more effective it is once you can hook a plow to bullocks or horses or cows than it is to have like people pulling plows to plow fields. Uh, there are no thing. Then we'll come back to Australia. Going to ground it in this country. What you going to try and use a kangaroo to pull a plow? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> uh, yeah, the the only big fauna we had here were megafauna when uh, the first Aborigin- uh first Ab- indigenous people arrived. You don't want to try and uh, do those. Well, like yeah, I really don't see you taming a giant a wombat. Womb- yeah, like well, have you tried? Okay, as someone who's actually had to deal with wombats before, they are stubborn. Uh, <laughs> just get emus to do it. Yeah, <laughs> just get emus. But exactly right. Even even birds is like again domesticating a jungle fowl that that ancestor to a chicken, like a jungle fowl, and an emu is a very different beast. Yeah. Uh, so, like, just, again, it's about how those environmental conditions and the animals and plants that you have access to on the ground can shape a society. Uh, now, we might sort of go a bit now into the dodgy stuff now. Uh, so, he overextends his good theories. So, theories like this, where he's like, okay, I can show that food production and domestication of animals and the access that you have on the ground really can influence how a society develops. So, this is where the f- book falls apart. Yeah, and even then, like, I want to stress that this is a good book for like learning some things. It's just you really have to take a critical eye. Just uh, a pinch of salt. Yes. For instance, he leans hard on this idea that the diseases, the germs part of the guns, germs, and steel, that also aided in Europe's colonization of lots of the world because, we, as we know, various pandemics spread mostly from the European into native populations and were instrumental in doing a lot of damage to these populations. Uh, smallpox is a big one. However, he places the burden of this mostly because Europeans developed domesticated to domesticating animals before or in much larger capacity than people in, say, the Mesoamerican, Mesoamerican region or, uh, North, or pre-Columbus America. But And he uses a few examples. He pulls things like tuberculosis and malaria out. However, even back then in 1997 when the book was written, we knew that tuberculosis and malaria, as two examples that he cites did not come from domestic sources, or at least the best evidence we have shows that did not come from domestic sources. Awkward. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Malaria, for instance, seems to have been something we got from gorillas, Uh, and we've never domesticated gorillas. Uh, (laughs) And so it dates way back, and malaria is still one of the biggest killers in the world today. But I imagine... um I mean, just making an assumption, the incidence of malaria will increase as humans populate yeah. those areas that have a high incidence of malaria. But this is what I mean by taking your th- good theory too far. You could easily stop it to go, oh, well, agriculture and domestic animals helped population centers build and that creates a disease load, blah, 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 blah. But he actually specifically ties it to domesticated animals and mm. the disease load coming from them. And that simply doesn't seem to be that borne out by fact. No. Uh, the other thing is that we don't actually have that good records of how the disease load transferred back and forward in the regions at this time. There is some evidence that was bilateral disease load trades. I mean, uh, syphilis, to name an example. Uh, that's a new world disease that infected Europeans. So, the, again, the history is a bit shaky. And this is something that I really do want to hammer home is that he is pretty bad at history. <laughs> uh, just straight up this is something you should all any scientist who takes a, a crack at philosophy or or history you really need to strap your big boots on and like wade through the muck because <laughs> they're nine times out of ten really badly wrong and this is no <laughs> exception uh, so it completely removes the agency of a lot of local peoples and like erases 
the cultural diversity of these of continents. And the reason I really want to bring that up, because it sounds like, oh, it's a PC point. It's not. The flattening of continents of people into like, oh, this empire and that empire completely undermines one of the biggest reasons that colonialism works. And this is not just European colonialism in this time period. This is how the Romans did it. This is how Alexander the Great did it. This is how the Mali Empire did it. This is how everyone does it. It's, it's the old rule, divide and conquer. Uh, nine times out of ten, if you ever hear about how whatever civilization marched in with better technology and won, if you look into it, it's actually about the political... Uh, well, sorry, not just about it. There is a huge amount of political situation on the ground that comes into effect. And the one I want to talk to or talk about right now, or two really, is that Jared Diamond himself in his book brings up uh, the collision at Cajamaraca, which is a confrontation between the Spanish conquistadors and uh, the army of the Incan Empire. He basically says the reason they won is through superior weaponry, particularly steel and guns. This is just flat out not true. Uh, because a group of... In, I'll, I'll read an excerpt. So Pizarro, leading a ragtag group of 168 Spanish soldiers, was in unfamiliar terrain, ignorant of the local inhabitants, and completely out of touch with the nearest Spaniards. Uh, far beyond the reach of timely reinforcements, out to hold up... At, uh, sorry, I'm not really good at ancient Native American languages. And Atahualapa was in the middle of his own empire of millions of subjects and immediately surrounded by his sol- army of 80,000 soldiers. So immediately he sets up this idea of this 80,000 strong army being defeated by a couple hundred people. This is just, fr- this is just false. Uh, the Spanish people, the Spanish soldiers, uh, sorry, the Incan army, had, including the king Atahualapa, had sent an unarmed uh, unarmed emissary convoy to speak to Pizarro and they massacred the unarmed convoy. This is like completely different to 300 Spaniards beating 80,000 soldiers. The battle itself afterwards that did involve a confrontation between like a couple hundred Spaniards against a much larger force and they won also is misrepresented because yeah, there was only a couple hundred Spanish, but they had thousands of natives who were rebelling against the Incan Empire because they, the Incan Empire was in the middle of the Civil War uh, that fought with them. This is something that, like, again, th- this is basically true through all of colonial history and even further back. Like, looking at the, the idea of the 300 Romans, for, uh, 300 Spartans standing against Persia, for instance, is a great cultural moment totem thing. That's true. Well, according to records, there were 300 Spartans there. Do you know what? Do you know who Spartans never recorded? The thousands of slave soldiers, slave soldiers called helots that they deployed, because they're not important enough to make it into the historical record. It was just three hundred. Yeah, it was three hundred men plus thousands and thousands of our slaves. Uh, <laughs> and like, it just doesn't sound as romantic. And now, this is the point. This is something that a lot of scientists make the mistake of when we go to look at history. We think primary sources are raw data, and we treat it like raw data, but it's not. Because these, all primary histor- histories come from somewhere and you have to contextualize them. Because, for instance, the reason a lot of the Spanish uh, conquistadors conquering of South America sorry, really sounds impressive is because they were having the power taken away from them, the conquistadors as the premier colonial power. The Spanish crown was exerting more and more direct government control. And so to preserve their power, they would often glorify their victories and minimize their losses including ignoring the fact that they had thousands and thousands of levies of native peoples. Uh, so this is just, that's just like another, ex- another example of how the history sort of falls apart there. Uh, he also put forward some really 
uh, antiquated notions of like just ideas that have been debated and done even at the time, which is like uh, the idea that cultures diffuse better east to west than they do north to south just breaks down. Uh, there's a whole bunch of counterfactuals that don't work for that. Uh, and also a bit of what I like to call sourcing bias, which is if it's easier to access and process sources, they will impact that side of the history the more. This is why like, you get a lot more Western sources and things. Like Columbus was a thing. <laughs> yeah, because people knew how to translate Spanish and searching through the oral histories of the region is much more difficult. Uh, and so again, if you just treat, like, this is again, hist- how you do history as a scientist, is like you need to understand and contextualize all the things that you're doing. Now I'm running out of time, so I will just wrap this up really quickly. Uh, decent book about sort of like crops and animal and domesticating animals ignore the history in it basically entirely maybe you should do up a little page of like which pages are good and which ones are crap uh, it's a it's a pretty chunky book it's actually yeah. it's well okay a lot of anthropology guys and historians and stuff have well 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 discussed this novel before read it but also read what all the other people in this field have to say and when they say it's wrong because they're basically right. He does a lot of things wrong. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And we don't have much time left, so we're going to really quickly do some excerpts of the other books that we had and wanted to talk about. So, Nadia, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, so the other book I have here is called The Science of Superheroes, and it's written by Lois Grish and Robert Weinberg. And very excitingly, it has an introduction written by Dean Kuntz, if anyone's Ooh. a fan. <laughs> and basically, it's just a, it's a nice little book to read through. I'm not the biggest like superhero fan or comic fan, but I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Basically, it goes through the science of the superheroes, whether it's plausible, as well as the history around the time when those superheroes first came out. Yeah. A bit of backstory on the origins That's and cool. all of that. And also what was happening with the authors at the time, like with Stan Lee. I might and... have to borrow this book off you. Oh, go ahead. Um, again, this was a nice one I found at Lifeline Bookfest, and it was also published in 2002. Now, the excerpt I'm going to be doing very quickly is in the chapter called Under the Sea, and it talks about um, Aquaman and the Submariner. And the section is about whether we can talk to fish. Now, throughout the adventures of Aquaman and Submariner, the two underwater superheroes talk to fish. Mostly, they command fish, though sometimes their finny allies bring them information or news about undersea problems. We're never actually told about how this communication takes place. Neither Aquaman or Submariner actually speak to the fish underwater, but it is usually hinted that telepathy is involved. Nor do the fish ever disobey the commands given to them by their half-human buddies, even when it means they have to put their lives on the line to save some incompetent humans. <laughs> how do fish communicate? Is there any method that Aquaman or, and Submariner could use to talk to them and get them to obey their every command? There are 20,000 types of fish. They make up the largest group of vertebrates. Fish communicate in numerous ways. Much of their communication is done visually. Body language among fish includes certain movements, postures, body color, and color patterns. Many fish can change their color and do so as part of mating or fighting. Many fish communicate by sound, grinding their teeth and rubbing their body parts together. Certain fish make sounds using the swim bladder, an air sac inside the body that regulates buoyancy. It's possible that Submariner or Aquaman Communicate with fish using one or more of these methods. They all have a swim bladder. (laughs) Though how the fishmen change color is unknown. More likely, our heroes use pheromones, chemicals that are produced by the body that can be detected by fish. Pheromones carry specific messages that result in behavioral changes in other fish. These messages usually deal with food, enemies, or sex. 
Reaction to pheromones are automatic. Different species of fish create different pheromones. Communication between different types of fish is usually impossible. The use of pheromones by insects and animals is a proven fact. Scientists are less sure about hum humans emitting pheromones. It's been assumed for many years that humans don't and that we're beyond such primitive response systems. However, research over the past decade has suggested that people might produce pheromones in sweat. While no results have been proven beyond a shadow of doubt, numerous companies have been quick to advertise pheromone spray, guaranteed to attract attention from the opposite sex. <laughs> More research needs to be done on human pheromones before we can draw conclusions. Still, if we're capable of pr producing such odors, detectable only at a subconscious level, then it does seem to the outlandish that a hybrid being, half fish and half human, would be able to communicate with fish in the same manner. Since pheromones produce automatic behavior, sending signals in this manner would be tantamount to telling fish exactly what you want done, without any worries that your command wouldn't be obeyed. Like liquid breathing, commanding fish by pheromones is more of a dream than reality. Still, comic books are the stuff of dreams. Um, with science progressing at breakneck speed, what seems impossible today could very well occur in the future. Aquaman and Submariner could be here sooner than we imagine. Oh, I love it. Yeah, mm. it's a, I highly recommend the book. Um, it talks about Batman, Spider-Man. It goes through um, the Hulk. And it's it's very good. I, again, thoroughly enjoyed it. What would do you recommend? Think? I would love to know what it says about Batman. Because he's just, isn't he a rich guy? He's yeah, so rich. it goes through the, the technology. The history of capitalism. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quickly talk about um, an article by Michelle Starr, who is a writer at Science Alert. Um, and she's just uh, got the news that she's going to be published next year in the Best Australian Science Writing 2018 anthology. And they, they actually come out every year. So you can pick up a copy of the 2017 one now. Um, and they're quite good. They're, they're very interesting and, and worth reading. Um, so this is called Big Bang, The Science of Sex in Space. Um, and I'm going to just read a couple of excerpts from this piece. As it turns out, sex in microgravity is a bit more complicated than on-screen depictions might have you believe. With NASA, the European Space Agency, and other outfits declining to address the subject of hanky-panky in space, the official position seems to be that there has never, ever, ever been any. If there has, nobody's talking. And even the mo only married astronaut couple to have been in space together, NASA's Mark Lee and Jan Davis, are not talking either. It's also possible, though, that no one has... Um, it is... It's also possible, though, that nobody has had SpaceX, and for good reason. It would be fiddly, tricky, and messy, but it wouldn't be completely impossible. So they speak first about um, floating weightless in zero-G. On the ISS, a constant small breeze that keeps the station ventilated presents an additional challenge. Not only would you have to hold on to your partner to avoid being pushed apart with each thrust, you'd have to fight the breeze pushing against you, which I find hilarious. Just like, it's just the best image. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to have like a bunch of different grip handholds and probably have like some sort of bungee like, between you two. Yeah, to keep the... Yeah. Um, aboard the ISS, two people looking to avoid pushing themselves apart could sequester themselves on board one of the small sleeping quarters. The tight fit could prove beneficial, bracing the participants against walls so they don't bounce apart. It would even provide a measure of privacy since the quarters have doors that close. But would the ventilation be adequate for two people breathing heavily? If you're in a small space, you don't have a lot of vent ventilation there. So carbon dioxide levels are building up. I have a headache takes on a whole new meaning because, well, yeah, you do. Carbon dioxide isn't the only thing that builds up. Your body is going to heat up and your sweat won't roll away since there's no gravity working on it. And the ISS doesn't have a shower. Um, mm. On the ISS, astronauts take something more of a kin of a cat bath using a damp washcloth. It's possible to clean up because astronauts need to exercise on the ISS, but it's going to be arduous. 
Um, and the other thing that she's talked about in this particular piece was about how you would have babies in space. And right now, it, you wouldn't. It's no. not, not going to happen. Yeah, unless you want to like. The skeleton structure is going to be messed up. You need gravity. Yeah. And the thing is, how if we are going to colonize other planets, like, are we going to have to create artificial gravity before we can have babies on spacecrafts? Like, that's just a really interesting thing. Even before that, sex on spacecraft definitely actually would need to happen just because, look, you're in a tin can uh, hurtling through space any minute of which, you're in, like, you, these are not comfortable quarters. These are not. Nothing, no. nothing about them is fun or comfy. They're literally the bare minimum you have to live. In any sort of long-distance travel, in order to prevent people killing each other, you're <laughs> going to need... Ser- no, I'm like, this is a serious. Like, we need to, like... You'll need psychologists on board, de- antidepressants. You're probably <laughs> going to need to have sex. Like, all of these things have to be thought about because if it takes 20 years... Take a snuggle buddy that you are assigned yeah. and that's it. Like, <laughs> Well, how long would it take to, say, reach, like... Jupiter or Mars and stuff like these are actually really really Mars ast- uh, is like six months six months but like yeah. so we're going that's just Mars so we're going for, if you want to go any further than that you're looking at like a massive time commitment with people in the smallest like smallest environments for like huge stretches of time you're going to need something to stop you from jumping to murder suicide it'll be interesting in the next 20 50 years i think we'll just take dr tatiana's advice and say it's okay to just masturbate (laughs) (laughs) well actually that's another thing they talk about is like yeah masturbation definitely happens like there's been no sex on the iss okay there's actually a great you can actually find this transcript from the iss i think might not the iss might be one of the apollo missions where a rogue turd (laughs) is flying around (laughs) the ship and no one will own up to whose it is Please Google it. Find the actual transcript. It is truly hilarious. And what the, is the show this oh week? And they're, they're, there's even people go one of them going, "No, mine are worse than that." And like, like it is brilliant. It's a small. It's a very short oh, transcript. It's no. readable. Just go Google it. Find it. Oh my god, I love oh. it. I love it. That's so good. So this week <laughs> we've done book club. I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, <laughs> I've enjoyed it. It's been an interesting show. I've I've had fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Let us know if you guys uh, ever want us to do it again, I suppose. I mean, we you won't four be weeks. able to. No. I mean, we're not going to do it you again won't. in the next four weeks. So it was on the Apollo 10 mission in May 6, 1969. That's amazing. Turds in space. <laughs> Good on them. Good oh, on them. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we've. if you want to check out any of those books, feel free to send us a tweet or anything like that. We can follow up. But um, if you do want any of the books, yeah, let us know. We've got um, Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice for All Creation by Olivia Judson. We've got Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World by Rachel Ignofsky. Um, Science of Superheroes by, is it Lewis? Uh, Lois. Lois. Lois Gresh and Robert Weinberg. And Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. Also, like, really briefly, I just want to say like on on that Guns, Germs and Steel, the big takeaway from these things is anyone who tries to presume, to project like a grand historical narrative for like all of history is like wrong in, gen- in general. <laughs> uh, it always breaks down. But there are some useful things you can take away from it about how things influence each yeah, other. Yeah, and they're interesting. Also, um, I really want to quote this, this okay. line. Thing. Okay, so... Day six of the mission, Captain Commander Tom Stafford noticed it first. Oh, who did it? He asked, laughing. Who did it? <laughs> Give me a napkin, quick, he told the others. There's a turd floating through the air. And now this is directly from the, conf- the ex-confidential, the declassified confidential transcript. Uh, I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it's one of mine. Mine was a little more sicky than that. Throw that away. God almighty. And then just laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Your natural reaction. 
that is the uh, sort of stuff we get up to. We don't have any guests. Next week, we should be back to normal programming. But you've only got three weeks left. So if you really want us to talk about something, please let us know. You're in that reaction. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Bye. Bye.